If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel. My full name is Jacob Daniel Winograd, I'm often referred to as Jacob Daniel. I'm a husband, a father to four, a transmission rebuilder by trade. Some of you know me from watching my personal podcast, the Daniel 3 podcast, or from my involvement in the Libertarian Party and Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. I've recently joined the Christians for Liberty podcast network, which is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. At the time of this recording, this hasn't happened yet, but by the time this gets posted, there will be an introduction episode for the Christians for Liberty Network, and a link to that should be in the show notes. So this first episode is going to go more into detail as to introducing this podcast, myself, and sort of the scope of what we're going to be doing here, what we're going to be talking about. And, you know, essentially, this podcast, the way I'm, you know, titling it and the way I'm, you know, hoping to use it with the content that I'm putting out is to ongoingly make the biblical case for anarchism and to more specifically be going to the Bible to help inspire Christians to, as I said in the introduction, you know, live counterculture and to, you know, be more like Jesus in our pursuit of truth, in loving our neighbors and loving our enemies and in trying to inspire change and peace in our society. The name of this podcast, Biblical Anarchy, is a term that I chose specifically, and that's because it emphasizes the style and the philosophical ordering of Christian libertarianism that I want to promote. Biblical, of course, meaning that it's based in the Word and treating the Bible and the exegesis of the Scriptures seriously, and that, you know, I don't want to ground anything that I'm doing in either my own thoughts and feelings or solely in some sort of secular philosophy. And so, although I definitely think we can take a lot away from looking at libertarian and anarchist philosophy, and including those who are not Christians within that world, I obviously want to first and foremost be making a case for these things from the Bible and doing so in a way that is not imposing my own worldview on the Bible, but rather being led through a responsible reading of Scripture to take the lessons from Scriptures and merely apply them in a consistent and rational fashion that harmonizes the text. So the first word being biblical, and now the second word then, anarchy, being the philosophical position that I take as a consequence of the Scriptures regarding human authority and governance. Now, to those who are already libertarians or anarchists, this is probably going to be a bit of review. 
But to those who are newer than libertarianism or checking things out for the first time, I think it's important to have a conversation at the start here where we define terms. So I want to start that out by answering the question, what is anarchy and also what isn't anarchy? Like I said earlier, this podcast will be largely focused on making the biblical case for anarchism and speaking out against the kingdoms and the empires of this world and pointing to Jesus Christ, both to him for salvation, of course, as the gospel, the good news to mankind, and also to look to him as an example of how we ought to live and treat each other. So for this first episode, I think it's good to make a summary of the general case for Christian libertarianism, specifically biblical anarchy. Now, anarchy might seem like a scary word or no-no word to many, but I would ask Christians listening who are skeptical to consider that just as the term Christian might often seem misrepresented by the media or by the bad actors using that label, I would ask for you to come to this discussion with an open mind, as the term anarchy also suffers from this association with, with the worst elements and the worst actors who have used that term. Suffice to say, from the start, I'm not advocating a philosophy of violent revolution or chaos, as those things are antithetical to Christ and the scriptures. All right, so let's start up by doing a quick overview of historical anarchy versus anarchy today. So anarchy in its simplest terms is the opposition to rulers, uh, meaning against, and archy, meaning ruler. It's Closely related, of course, to libertarianism, although not all libertarians would consider themselves anarchists, precursors of philosophical anarchy exist throughout history. But the term itself and the development of anarchist thought most agree started in 18th century France. In his work, What is Property?, published in 1840, French political philosopher Joseph Proudhon defined anarchy as the absence of a master of a sovereign and wrote that as, as man seeks justice in equality, so society seeks order in anarchy. In Confessions of a Revolutionary, he writes that whoever lays his hand on me to govern me is a usurper and a tyrant, and I declare him my enemy. And in the general idea of the revolution, Proudhon urged for a society without authority. Now, his views evolved later in life, and it's you know, useful to point this out, I think. In his work, Theory of Property, which was published after his death, Proudhon began to argue that property was the only power that could act as a counterweight to the state, which seemed to fly in the face of his earlier sentiments, which kind of coined the expression that property is theft. So Proudhon is often associated with what is known as, other than like classical anarchism or left anarchism, more specifically as a mutualist. And mutualist anarchists, including Proudhon, often people claim that they oppose property, but it's a little bit of an oversimplification. Rather, mutualists would oppose any form of property that in their mind isn't legitimately acquired or that which is unearned. Uh, this would be like things like interest on loans or income from rent, as opposed to legitimate ownership in their mind being the ownership of goods that they produced with their labor or things that they traded for, things that they need to survive, like their house, land, tools, etc. So, as Proudhon aged, he became a bit more pragmatic, didn't think that the state was ever actually going to be abolished. And so Proudhon actually argued in his work, Theory of Property, property was the only counterweight to the state. And that, you know, if we, his mind, it was a 
application of property rights in the spirit of sort of like an egalitarianism to bulwark against the encroaching power of the state because in order to have you know liberty you know we people kind of need to be able to own things and trade things so Purdue was able to make that observation and so often people will categorize the original anarchists as like like Proudhon as being you know anti all hierarchy and anti all property rights and Although certainly they were shaky on these those things, there's a bit more nuance there. So to move on from Proudhon, though, and there you know many other anarchists that we could go over after Proudhon who continued to take those ideas and develop them, but we're going to jump forward to uh, someone here in the good old USA. So contrasting with the beginnings of anarchism being more on the left, modern day anar- anarchism, or at least anarchism as it's developed more in America taking a more of a rightward direction, starting mostly with Murray Rothbard. From 1926 to 1995, Murray Rothbard was an American economist and a political philosopher out of the Austrian school, a student of Ludwig von Mises, the father of the Austrian school of economics. Rothbard argued that all services provided by the monopoly system of the corporate state could be provided more efficiently by the private sector. And he wrote that the state is an organization of robbery systematized and writ large. He called out fractional reserve banking as a form of fraud and opposed central banking. He categorically opposed all military, political, and economic interventionism in the affairs of other nations. See, essentially Rothbard kind of took the idea of property rights being a key to limiting the state and and sort of like pushed that to its like natural evolution or most like logical and pure end. See, the state is an entity that exists by defining property rights. And property rights, in the mind of anarcho-capitalists, which is the school of anarchism that Rothbard is attributed with founding, property rights are foundational to not just maintaining liberty, but to defining liberty. Rather than grounding, grounding anarchism in some social egalitarianism, Rothbard grounded anarchism in a consistent application of self-ownership property rights and the non-aggression principle. Rothbard and the school of anarcho-capitalism completes the saying that anarchists often use, which is that anarchism is not an absence of rules, but rather an absence of rulers. See, anarchists, like I just said, are not against the idea of law and order, so to speak. And they're not even against the idea of government. And anarchists would push back against the conflation of the state with government or the state with order. Government in this theory of anarchism is less of a thing to abolish, but rather it's something to be privatized and decentralized entirely. And property and property rights aren't a means to an end, but rather they're ends in and of themselves. It is still anarchy in the sense that there is not a centralized ruler or someone who has a monopoly of power. There's still authority and there's still rules, but this sort of authority and and governance is something that people come to through the market, through voluntary exchanges and contracts and natural hierarchies, not through, enforced through private courts and market forces, not through fiat and coercion like the state does. To, To further illustrate some of these ideas, I want to go to some of the writings of Murray Rothbard. These will be all quotes from his work, The Ethics of Liberty. 
if a man has the right to self-ownership, to control, uh, to the control of his life, then in the real world, he must also have the right to sustain his, his life. Self-ownership might be a foreign term to a new libertarian or someone exploring these ideas for the first time, but essentially it speaks to the nature of one's right to claim an exclusive right to their own body in all things, both in what is done to their body and what they do with their body, so long as an action doesn't infringe upon the rights or the self-ownership of someone else. To Rothbard and the anarcho-capitalist, the basis of moral actions are that they are made by self-owners and free from coercion. As Murray puts it, there can be no truly moral choice unless that choice is made in freedom. So maybe you are wondering, okay, we should value freedom, but does this require us to be anarchists? Why should we oppose the state entirely? And if we value freedom, do we not need a state to protect our freedoms? Well, to go with Murray here, the essential activities of the state necessarily constitute criminal aggression and the depredation of the just rights of private property of its subjects, including self-ownership. So I want to take a minute here to highlight a distinction. It's important to distinguish between anarchy as a theory of political order and anarchism as a political and limited moral position or philosophy. Many anarchists believe, you know, or most anarchists believe, that the state is illegitimate. But nevertheless, many will continue to work within the current system to try to make things better. See, a belief in anarchy doesn't require one to support revolution, violent or otherwise. Rather, it establishes what is morally normative in human relationships. And it cries out for this morality and for the rights of human beings to be consistent, to not create special categories where what is moral for some people is immoral for others and vice versa, that what is declared to be immoral for some people, there's an exception made for a select few. As Murray puts it, the state by its very nature must violate the generally accepted moral laws to which most people adhere. The state says that citizens may not take from another by force and against his will that which belongs to another. And yet the state does just that. To go beyond one's right of self-defense would be to aggress on the rights of others, a violation of one's legal duty. And yet the state, by its claimed monopoly, forcibly imposes its jurisdiction on persons who may have done nothing wrong. By doing so, it aggresses against the rights of its citizens, something which its rules say citizens may not do. So the state is an inherently illegitimate institution of organized aggression, of organized and regularized crime against the persons and properties of its subjects, and profoundly antisocial, profoundly antisocial institution, which lives parasitically off of the productive activities of private citizens. And still quoting Murray here, since the state necessarily lives by the compulsory confiscation of private capital, and since its expansion necessarily involves ever greater incursions on private individuals and private enterprise, we must assert that the state is profoundly and inherently anti-capitalist. The state uses its coerced revenue not merely to monopolize and provide genuine services inefficiently to the public, but also to build up its own power at the expense of the exploited and the harassed subjects. Now, an objection to anarchy might come in the way of acknowledging all of this and acknowledging the inherent evil and danger of the state, but arguing that 
this just means that we need to make the smallest state possible and to just be vigilant and that the people must work to keep to to you know craft some kind of constitution that limits its powers and work to hold the government and the politicians to those limitations. The anarchists would simply point out that historically, every time this has been tried, it has been a failure. As Murray puts it, there's no reason to assume that a compulsory monopoly of violence, once acquired by any state rulers, will, will remain limited to protection of person and property. Certainly, historically, no government has long remained limited in this way. I mean, once you have conceded to a group of people these special rights and monopoly of force, the incentives of those in power will always be to grow and protect their own power, and often to ally themselves with the rich and special interests who can help get them into power. And then this creates a very, you know, symbiotic relationship between the rich elites and the political ruling class. And this is how we develop things in terms like the deep state or the permastate or etc. So that's a kind of a summary zoomed out view of anarchy historically and a summary of the philosophical positions of anarchy, both from Proudhon all the way to Rothbard. I would identify more as a Rothbardian anarchist, but um, I think it is important to know the history and the development of these ideas. Now that we've established what anarchy is, it begs the question, how can anarchy be biblical? So like I said, I think a compelling case and summary of libertarian anarchism has been made. But now the challenge arises to make the case for biblical anarchy. It's all well and good to make the case for anarchy by itself, like I said before. But as Christians, again, we seek to live a life following after Christ and led by his word. And that is what should lead. And so while I think it's useful to define anarchy, we can't justify anarchy or state that anarchy is biblical unless we go to the Bible. So what does the Bible say about authority and government? Well, a lot. <laughs> it's too much to say in one podcast. But to get the ball rolling, here are three passages that I think we should focus in on. The first one is going to be 1 Samuel 8. Now, to set the stage here a little bit, this was after the book of Judges. And in a separate podcast down the road, we will definitely go more into the book of Judges. But suffice to say, this was an area of essentially like a tribal anarchy within the uh, land of Israel. There, as, as the book of Judges says many times, there was no king in the land. So right off the bat, when we, you know, asking the question, is anarchy biblical? Well, we can look back to biblical history and see a period of time in which God's people were living in an essential anarchy with each other. And I want to be clear here, anarchy is describing human relationships. So before anyone would raise the objection, well, a Christian can't be an anarchist because God is king and Christ is king. Well, first I would say, amen, you know, God is Lord and Jesus is king. But because God is Lord and Jesus is king, we humans necessarily cannot be. Because God's authority is supreme and sovereign, human authority is necessarily limited and cannot rise to the same shape or form or uh, authority of God's. So if we're analyzing the vertical relationship between God and man, we obviously are subservient and below God. But man to his fellow man, rather, well, that is a different type of relationship that needs to be explored. So in the, you know, the book of Judges ends, and, and although I would say, you know, 
least a a hundred or more years of the time that the Book of Judges describes, uh, you know, this tribal anarchy, the people lived in, you know, relative peace. Was it utopia? Did nothing bad happen? Well, no, but that's not the claim of anarchists either. You know, we would not say that anarchy is utopia. You know, clearly the state isn't utopia because, you know, we've had states for thousands of years and bad things and wars and evil still persists. So it's a non sequitur to to expect any system to eliminate evil. We're just trying to find a way to limit evil and to not perpetuate evil. And, you know, for a time in the Book of Judges, the anarchy that Israelites lived in was peaceful. And I think that is right off the bat before I even get into 1 Samuel 8, just something to think about and consider. Getting into 1 Samuel 8 then, this is after the end of the book of Judges where there was this major conflict, essentially a civil war. And to kind of, you know, the last thing I'll say is the way I read this is that you get the sense that the Israelites are kind of tired because this freedom that they have requires them to solve their own problems. You know, self-governance means self-governance means you have to do it yourself. And Israelites weren't, you know, a fan of that, it seems. It seems. So let's get into the text. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the second Abijah, and the judges were in Beersheba. Uh, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Right away also, just to pause here, note they don't appeal to scripture or to some argument, like an appeal to God or anything like that. What they're appealing to is, we want to be like everyone else. <laughs> so not a biblical case for kingship at the very least. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I have brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So interesting to note here, the Israelites go to God and ask for a king. And God compares this, you know, if you get the reference there, to like how when they came out of Egypt and they forsake him and want to serve other gods, you know, we think of the golden calf story. You know, essentially, this is an issue of idolatry. It's an issue of not wanting to just be ruled by God, but wanting to be ruled by other men, which is a lot like second commandment violation, if you think about it. But God says, now then, obey their voice only first. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and his equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. 
He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. I almost feel like mic dropping here and just ending the podcast, but we do have more to get to. But I at least want you to really soak in that passage and at least let that be a compelling case for being skeptical of human kingdoms and the state, even if you're not completely sold on anarchy as a better way yet. And I want to emphasize, he said, obey the voice of the people, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. He says that you're going to be his slaves. He says he's going to, the king is going to take your property and your children, and the property is going to be for him to enjoy, and your children are going to serve on the front lines of his wars. And man, I mean, looking at today here in America, and one can, I mean, I often focus in a lot on the death that our military causes, but it's also important to note the deaths of how many young people, how many young people's lives have been ruined, how many have been scarred because they've been, you know, manipulated or in the past drafted to serve on the front lines of the ruling elites in their wars. We could go on, I could go on expounding upon 1 Samuel 8, but let's move on to another passage here. Go to jump to the New Testament now. This is Mark chapter 10. This is verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant, James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but rather... Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I want to comment on that passage, but I think to supplement what I want to say about that passage, I'm going to read the third passage here, which is from John chapter 13, and it's verses 5 through 10. And then 12 through 16, the only two I'm skipping there are just the parts about Judas, which are not important into the, uh, you know, what we're trying to talk about here. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel and wrapped them around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you will have no share of me or share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is showing us in these passages that true authority, that to truly be like Jesus is not to exercise an authority that we lord over people, that we can justify exercising power over people to control them and to coerce them and to make them bow to our will. But what Jesus is teaching and demonstrating in these two passages and in his entire ministry, in his entire life walking on this planet, was a radical message of peace and service that to be great is to be last, and that one who is in authority is not to use that authority to control and to rule, but rather to serve. And when we go to a passage like Romans 13, we have to consider these things together. So hear these passages and then think back to when I was defining anarchy. And the reason I defined anarchy first is not because I want to push anarchy on the text, but I just I rather wanted to set the record straight about what anarchy is and to show how it's compatible with what the Bible teaches about the kingdoms of man, about the state, and about what is normative for human relationships and for authority and what standard Jesus taught us, what example Jesus gave us for how to lead and how to use authority. We are not to act as rulers over our fellow man. Rather, we are supposed to serve our fellow man as Jesus did, and to, through that service and through that love, lead people, not force people. Now, I want to be clear, there is a time for wielding the sword. I am not a pacifist. And I do think that when people are violating the rights of others and people are initiating force against other people, there is also a God-ordained authority to defend the innocent against the wicked. You know, this is, I think, what the heart of Romans 13 speaks about. To let every person be subject to the higher powers or the higher authorities, for there is no authority except from God. So right away from the beginning, we're tying the authority back to God. So we have to define those authorities based upon the norms that God has given us through his word and through his example in Jesus Christ. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, 
and those who will resist will incur judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Some will get caught up here on the word rulers. Don't have time to do a full exegesis of Romans 13 here. I've done that before in the past, and I will do so again. But in this context, rulers are not being described as people who are going to go and force people to act a certain way. Rather, they are people who, as the text goes on to say, um, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. It says, would you have no fear from the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Folks, what's being described here is not a contradiction to what Jesus said in the two passages I read before or to 1 Samuel 8. It's not like those three passages are teaching to use authority in love and in service and decrying the Israelites' call to have a king or a state. Rather, what is being ordained here is that God does also ordain over those who would act in the protection of the innocent and to oppose those who would do violence or harm to other people. We are not called to stand by idly and allow evil to just go unchecked. Now, it is important to note in Romans 12, Paul does tell us to love our you know, neighbors, but also to love our enemies, echoing Jesus you know, when he told us to turn the other cheek to those who transgress against us, and to live at peace insofar as it depends on us with all. So, in that context then, Paul is pointing out, much like I am here, that, well, we're not supposed to be pacifists. We aren't supposed to do nothing in the face of evil. If people are themselves terrorizing good people, what Romans 13 is ordaining over is the sword being wielded against the wrongdoer to protect the innocent. So, there's two questions that one has to answer here. If they're going to try to use Romans 13 to dispute anarchy, and to justify statism. First, he's going to have to reconcile what we established earlier, which is that the state exists through violating what is supposedly being protected in terms of the laws that the state is enforcing. Now, the state is founded upon initiating coercion and threatening force and the theft of people's property. So right away, the state is, in all of those ways, acting as the very evil that Romans 13 says that the higher powers are supposed to be wielding the sword against. So you would almost have to say that, Roman, if you're going to take a view, Romans 13 is describing the state, that Romans 13 is saying the state must wield the sword against itself. And then the second question would be, going beyond just how the basic nature of the state is in contradiction with uh, the passages that we read in terms of what God, what Jesus was teaching about authority and against 1 Samuel 8, and, you know, how the state is perpetuating evil by its very existence. But let's just look at history and look at the current day and look at all the ways, all the other ways beyond just the basic existence of the state, that the state is a constant terror to those who do good. And let's also look at how the state is more often than not the state, people who are in charge of the state 
are the ones doing evil. Think about how many people in charge of states are killing their own people or are waging war against their neighbors, locking people up in jail for nonviolent crimes. Let's think about the worst states in the history of mankind. Can you look at Hitler and say that he was a servant of God, a minister for the good of his people? Does that really make sense? Because if Romans 13 is going to describe the state, there's no exceptions provided here. My brothers and sisters, please pray and meditate on what I am saying. I am not against authority. I am for being subject to the higher powers that are issued by God. But what I would challenge you to consider here is that Romans 13 is not describing the state. It is rather a prescription for godly governance. And what, God, what, what Paul is describing here is God limiting human authority and that their ordinance is in the pursuit of punishing evildoers and to protect those who do good. And there is no level of analysis in which this applies to the state. And if I sound animated, it is only because I am animated by a Christ-like love for the thousands, really millions of people that the state has historically slaughtered and been a terror to. And that includes even today. And that includes even our own state here in America. It says in the intro that biblical anarchy, that this podcast seeks to be a prophetic voice against the empire, against the kingdoms of this world. And that means holding those who have claimed to be an authority to the text, holding them accountable to what God has ordained. And when they are not acting in accordance with the text, with the ordinance described in Romans 13, then they are not acting with legitimate godly authority that has been appointed to them. Rather, they are much like in verse simulate is being described. They are acting as false gods, as idols. And like Jesus taught, we cannot serve two masters. And we can look to the Bible in so many other areas. We can look to Moses telling Pharaoh to let my people go. We can look to Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego telling King Nebuchadnezzar, that they can throw the, he can throw them into a fiery furnace, but they will not bow down to him. No matter what the law says, they will bow only to God. We look at Daniel going into the lion's den because he refused to stop praying to and worshiping God. We can look to Esther. We can look to the apostles themselves, who many of them were thrown in jail or even stoned to death by the authorities who wanted them to stop preaching the gospel, but they refused to stop. Jesus himself, in many ways, pushed back against the authorities of his time, not through violence, but through radical love towards his neighbor and even his enemies. This conversation has only started. This one episode here isn't exhaustive of this subject, and that's why it's only episode one. The purpose of this podcast is to be continuously and simultaneously glorifying Christ by humbly diving into his word and to be led by the Holy Spirit in sound exegesis to determine what the Bible teaches us about government and human authority. It is my firm belief and conviction that if we are going to take the Bible at its word and all of it to be in harmony with itself as holy, inspired, and errant scripture, and we are going to consistently, as Christians, to be Christ-like, follow after Jesus' example, 
then we are led to make the case as I am making here for biblical anarchism. If I haven't convinced you yet, that's fine, but keep tuning in and let's continue that conversation. And I also encourage you to check out uh, libertarianchristians.com and check out all the resources that the Libertarian Christian Institute has to make the case for libertarianism from the Christian worldview. And I would also recommend, if you want to look more into this as other than just things online and podcasts, purchasing the book Faith Seeking Freedom, which gets really deep into a lot of questions that you might have about this topic. But I hope that the case I made is at least one that gets you thinking about these subjects and at least gets you to consider what the nature of the state is and to at least be questioning if a Christian can truly follow after Christ while having loyalty to the statist apparatus. So I thank you for listening and thank you everyone for tuning in. If you you know want to, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show. You can leave us a review or something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And there'll be more to come. There'll be new episodes every week. So until next time, no king but Christ. See you next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.